All right, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord God, for another Lord's Day, the best of all days, and we pray that you will so enlarge our hearts today that they will express that holy enthusiasm, that we get to have the great joy and the exceeding privilege as your people to mark off the whole of a day out of seven that you've appointed, that you've designed to be kept holy and thereby not treated like any other day, but a very uncommon day, Lord, because it is a day devoted entirely to your worship. And so we trust in you for every sanctifying grace that is your people we desperately need by the power of the indwelling spirit to carry this out to your glory and honor. And Father, we thank you for the means of grace that help us to this end. And specifically, what we are about to engage in with the means of teaching. We pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit will accompany this work of your word to minister to our hearts and to do so in such a way that we will have many layers added to our understanding regarding a subject that is most controversial among Christians, largely because, Lord, we recognize it is so confusing for many Christians, and that is the subject of free will. We pray that the beginning of this study will be the beginning of a greater clarity to the truth of your word and what it teaches regarding this reality that is true of every human that you have created in your image. We commit these things, Lord, into your hands for the sake of Christ Jesus, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin by opening up our confession of faith to chapter 9. And we're going to read all five paragraphs, the whole chapter. But then come back to paragraph one. So chapter nine of free will, paragraph one. God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice. That it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. Man in his state of innocency, had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was mutable so that he might fall from it. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. When God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin. 
and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so, as that by reason of his remaining corruptions, he does not perfectly, nor only will that which is good, but does also will that which is evil. This will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory only. Now back to paragraph one. God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. And then reading from God's word, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 12. Matthew 17 and verse 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And the emphasis here is obviously on, but did to him whatever they pleased. Whatever they pleased. Hence free will. Okay. We'll open this up in our study. So this morning, we do return to our expositional study of the Second London Baptist Confession after a six-month hiatus. And upon our re-entry into the Second London, we're beginning a new chapter study, which lands us in chapter 9, entitled, Of Free Will. As we start our look into chapter 9, I believe it would be helpful to have an overview of the landscape we've already covered in the confession, not to mention the landscape that's even ahead of us, in order to aid us in making better sense of why chapter 9 is concerned with free will. Looking at the second London from 30,000 feet, we see that these 32 chapters can be divided up into four different units. Unit 1 can be entitled First Principles as it covers chapters 1 through 6. These first six chapters explain the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of God's decree and the execution of His decree via creation and providence. And then lastly, there is the doctrine of man's fall into sin and the consequences preceding his fall. Unit 2 can be entitled The Covenant, as it covers chapters 7 to 20. This section of the confession is concerned to show how God's plan, accomplishment, and application of redemption is by way of covenant. Simply stated, salvation is achieved by means of covenant. This is why chapter 7 sets out to explain the nature of covenant theology from a Baptist perspective, which is then followed by chapter 8, where we see our covenant head, who is Christ Jesus our Lord. The connection of these two chapters is significant since in chapter 8 we're told how exactly God's covenant of redemption is secured and carried out. It is by the person and work of God's eternal Son made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So, in chapters 10 through 13, the covenantal blessings of redemption are expounded from the divine position, which are then followed by an exposition of these blessings from the human position in chapters 14 to 18. Lastly, in chapters 19 and 20, the place and purpose of God's law is explained and applied with the preceding statement on God's grace in the gospel and how it spreads around the world. Unit 3 can be described as God-centered living, freedom and boundaries. This section is unfolded in chapters 21 to 30, and it unpacks such doctrines as Christian liberty, religious worship in the Sabbath day, lawful oaths and vows, civil magistrates, marriage, the church, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. The point of this great section in the Confession is to show how Christ has purchased our freedom, but it is a limited freedom restricted by biblical boundaries under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The last unit in the Second London Confession is focused on the world to come, or what we would say, last things. This is expounded in chapters 31 and 32. Here we have the eschatological doctrines of man's state following death and the final resurrection of the just and the unjust. This is then concluded with a detailed statement on the return of Christ and the final judgment. Now, having looked at the second London from 30,000 feet, let's land our plane, as it were, in chapter 9 and begin to answer the question as to why this chapter on free will is fixed where it is in the confession. Chapter 9 is part of Unit 2 on the Covenant. And what this chapter is concerned to show is the fourfold state of man's existence, first, as created with the will to choose, second, as fallen and in need of covenantal grace, third, as renewed, as exercised in covenantal grace, and fourth, as perfected in glory. Connected with chapter 7 and 8, chapter 9 prepares us for the discussion and exposition of God's way of salvation by covenant. But how it prepares us is by dealing with the way man relates to God's covenantal grace as fallen, redeemed, and glorified with the emphasis centered on the subject of man's will. The reason man's will is so important in this discussion is because God has created man as a moral free agent, but sin has clearly affected man's natural liberty. But to what extent has sin corrupted man's will to choose? And how does this all relate to God's covenantal working and securing salvation for the sinners he has chosen to save? How we answer this question, now listen to this, how we answer this question will color our whole understanding of salvation. Okay? Is salvation by grace alone? Or is it by grace plus works? Or to ask it another way, is salvation determined and carried out by God's will or man's will? For many Christians in our day, they would answer that question in the latter because they believe that man has free will and therefore salvation must be determined by man's will and not God's will. But here's my question. 
Does the doctrine of free will mean that man has the ability and power in himself to secure salvation or is free will something altogether different than what most Christians seem to think? It is to these kinds of issues which chapter 9 seeks to address. So in our approach to this chapter, I'll divide it up under five different headings, which I'm taking deliberately from Dr. Jim Renahan's own outline of this chapter. Paragraph one will be a general statement about man's will. Paragraph two will be man in innocency, a mutable being. Paragraph three will see man after the fall, total inability. Paragraph four will be man in grace, freedom from bondage. And then lastly, in paragraph five, we'll consider man in glory and immutable will. For our study this morning, we'll consider paragraph one under the heading, a general statement about man's will. Reading then paragraph one. Here in chapter 9 of the Second London Baptist Confession, it says, God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice that it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. At the outset, there are two things that must be stated as we enter our confessional study on free will. First, Reformed theology has never denied or rejected the truth of free will. Contrary to what popular opinion asserts about Christians who are doctrinally reformed, there is no evidence historically to prove that reformed theology has negated man as having a will that is truly free. The chapter that is before us here in the Second London Confession clearly says the opposite of what so many Christians wrongly think about the position of reformed theology concerning the human will. Second, the primary reason why so many Christians would impugn Reformed theology, denying free will, is because the predominant idea of free will among professing Christians is secular rather than biblical. Secular. When you talk about free will with most Christians, they think this means that human beings are able to make choices without any obstruction or constraint by sin. In other words, the human will is in a neutral state from birth. So then when it comes to sin, there is no corruption in the will of man influencing man's choices. The human will is seen as an island separated from the rest of man's fallen condition. In addition to this, to say that one has free will is synonymous with one having the ability to do whatever they choose to do. So not only is the human will viewed as unaffected by sin, but it is equally perceived as having a force of ability to do whatever a person sets their mind to do. This is why the truth of God's absolute sovereignty, especially in salvation, is so offensive to so many in the church because they hear about God's sovereignty with a presupposition that believes they have an ability to do something which God's sovereignty would never overrule or interrupt. 
But to confess this, to be free will is not Christian in the least degree. It is secular, it is pagan. And that's where most Christians are. That's where they are in their thinking about free will. They do not think Christian. They think secular. So what then is the truth about free will? What does the word of God reveal concerning the human will? From paragraph 1 here in chapter 9 of the Second London Confession, there are three principal answers I'll give to this question. In the first place, God has given man's will, natural liberty and power, to act upon choice. So reads the first clause of paragraph 1. God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice. What is being stated here is a truth about the way in which God has created all of humanity. When creating man in his image, God invested a quality to man's will which is described as that natural liberty and power of acting upon choice. By the term natural liberty is meant having a freedom which is in accord with one's nature. Having a freedom which is in accord with one's nature. We are free to choose and act in concert with our nature as humans. We are therefore given by God the power of acting upon choice. So we can choose to sleep or not sleep. We can choose to eat or skip the meal. We can choose to stay at home or go home or leave home. And on and on it goes. You understand, there are thousands upon thousands of choices we are free and thereby able to make as humans because this is what God has given to the will of man. We all have the God-invested faculty to make choices. To make choices. In the second place, our choices are not determined by any necessity of nature to do good or evil. This principle is a critical qualifier to the first, and it is how the second clause reads in this first paragraph, that it is neither forced nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. By these words, we get more to the heart of what free will means. Since God created man with natural liberty, then he cannot, listen to this, he cannot be coerced by some external force greater than himself to do something he doesn't want to do. With even a gun to his head and given only two choices to make, man will make the choice he wants to make regardless of what his captor wants him to do. This means that every choice we make is a real choice. A real choice we have acted upon and thus, and here's the kicker, and thus we are responsible and accountable for every choice we carry out. This is why the confession reads, nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. What does that mean? What is that exactly saying? Something that secular psychology hates. What this is saying is that our will to choose is not based on some form of moral determinism which would subject 
human choices to fixed mechanical or physical forces or even to the arbitrary influences of fate. In other words, there is no room within the biblical concept of free will for biological determinism or psychological syndromes. Rather, when a person chooses evil or chooses relative good, it is a choice which cannot be determined in such a way as to undermine the validity or culpability of their choice. Otherwise, there is nothing free about free will. Adding more layers to this fact, one writer observed, there is not an action or decision of ours that can be reduced to some natural law, some kind of inevitable system of causation, some force of the universe, some biological inheritance from our parents. Thus, to consider one sort of influence, if a boy always wills very bad things, it cannot all be blamed on the father. If a woman grows up to will the best things, her mother cannot claim all the credit. We are not determined by these factors. This is why, for instance, when God confronted Adam in the garden following his fall into sin, Adam along with his wife were what? They were both held responsible for what they had done, despite the fact, despite the fact that neither of them took personal responsibility for their actions. Neither Adam nor Eve took personal responsibility. Adam blamed his wife. Well, that's still going on. Adam blamed his wife, and he blamed even God for giving him Eve. Okay, remember that? Genesis 3.12. But what about Eve? Eve shirked her culpability by blaming the serpent. They were both playing the blame game. But the Lord... The Lord would not entertain such nonsense. They both made real choices of their own without any coercion to disobey God and they in turn would suffer the consequences of their actions. Adam could not say, my wife made me do it. Eve could not say, the devil made me do it. That, that does not fly with God. You are responsible for the choices you make. You are responsible. It is for this reason that when it comes to the final judgment... God's word is very clear in Romans 14 and verse 12 that each of us will give an account of himself to God. Are you paying any attention to what, to, to what that says? Each of us. Each of us. That's speaking of the individual. You, as an individual, will give an account to God in the judgment. And you're not going to be able to stand there before the judgment seat and say, but Lord, if I didn't have the parents I had. If I didn't have the wife I had or the husband I had. If 
But Lord, what about my children? No. No, I mean, none of that, none of that is, is going to factor in at the judgment seat of Christ and what Christ is going to give any audience to. Each of us will give an account of himself to God. And let me add, that's not speaking of only unbelievers at the judgment. Paul was writing that to the church. That's speaking also of believers. In fact, as Christians, according to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10, we will each receive what is due for what we have done in the body of Christ. And then listen to this. Paul says, whether good or bad. Whether good or bad. So while all our sins have been forgiven by God in Christ... Yes, and the condemnation we deserve for our sins has been completely taken away. Yes, yet we will have to take responsibility for the choices we made during the entire course of our earthly pilgrimage as God's people. This is because what we choose to do, even as Christians, even as Christians, what we choose to do were real choices, real choices, freely made without any necessity of force or moral determinism. You think that's popular teaching? The world hates that because the world is all into the blame game. We don't want to take responsibility. For any of our actions. But I dare say. That that thinking of the world. Is also very much. Within the church. Too. Indeed. I know it is. Because I'm a pastor. And I have to put up with that. 25 years of pastoring. There have been so many people professing Christians that I've had to deal with who refuse to take responsibility. I can't tell you how many of them were showing more the image of Adam than the image of Christ because they shirked the blame. They would shirk the blame. Sometimes, by God's grace, they come to their senses Realize how stupid they were, how selfish they were, and they take responsibility. Other times they don't, and the consequences may be excommunication, like we saw last year. Brothers and sisters, I hope you are thinking, as a Christian, that what you will be facing when you leave this earth what you will be facing in eternity 
It's not just the bliss and the joy of what will be eternal glory that is awaiting us, the place that Christ has gone to prepare for us. But we will also have to face, we'll have to face the reality, the hard reality, that at the judgment seat of Christ, we're going to answer for everything we've done in the body, whether good or bad. And while nothing can take away our salvation, praise God, and we are, we are gloriously promised that in the scriptures, yet, just because it cannot take away your salvation, don't think that that somehow means that you're not responsible for what you've done and that you won't answer for it. We will all answer. We will all answer. That's, that's, the reason, that's one of the reasons why the implication of what Paul wrote to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, work out your own salvation, and then listen to this caveat, with fear and trembling. Do we ever think about that? So many professing Christians I know, they're just coasting. I'm just coasting in the kingdom. Everything's great. Rainbows and puppies and... Where's the fear? Where's the trembling? It's supposed to be there. Because we should be living every day of our lives as Christians with a view of eternity, not with a view of just the here and the now. If you're living only, only in the view of the here and the now, you're worldly, you're not godly. That's worldliness. That's the way the world thinks. That's how the world lives. You know why? Because this is all they've got. This is it. How sad is that? The closest to heaven they'll ever get is right here. What a short, pathetic life. But that's not for the Christian. That's the reason the word of God describes us as pilgrims and sojourners and aliens. We're just passing through. But when you live in a capitalistic, consumer-obsessed culture like the United States of America, and every Christian in America is so tempted and lured to be drawn in to the consumer-driven culture we live in, where I'm storing up things on earth rather than, as Jesus said, we should be storing up things in heaven. And somebody says, well, what does all that got to do with free will? Well, it's all about the choices you make. The very real choices you make. And you will answer for them to the Lord. We are responsible, morally responsible, free agents. That's how God created you. That's how God created you. Well, 
Okay, saying that, there are a couple of qualifiers that must be made from two different spectrums, which never fail to come up in this present discussion about free will. First, man's freedom to choose does not nullify or discount God's decretive will, but actually establishes what God has already ordained. And suddenly our brains go. So reads our confession. Chapter 3, paragraph 1, listen to this. That while God hath decreed whatsoever comes to pass, yet his decretive will does no violence to the will of the creature, nor yet is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. What this statement is communicating is that the choices and actions of man matter. And they can be responsible for many things that happen in real time. The great mystery in this truth is that the outcome of man's action is already preordained by God, and yet, and yet, man remains responsible for all he does. So then man's free will never upsets or interrupts or changes what God has already willed to happen from eternity, but actually brings to pass God's eternal purpose, though man's choices remain free. Musing on this mystery, and I should emphasize mystery, Charles Spurgeon once said what all of us as Christians must feel over such a truth. You will appreciate this. Spurgeon said, can you understand it? For I cannot. How man is a free moral agent, a responsible agent, so that... His sin is his own willful sin and lies with him and never with God. And yet, at the same time, God's purposes are fulfilled. And his will is done even by demons and corrupt men. I cannot comprehend it. Without hesitation, I believe it and rejoice so to do. I never hope to comprehend it. I worship a God I never expect to comprehend. Thank you, Brother Spurgeon. You're saying what we're all thinking. We can apprehend him. We cannot comprehend him. Second, and this, this is so huge, man's liberty is not identical with man's ability. Man's liberty is not identical with man's ability. I've already touched on this fact in my preliminary remarks, but I believe we would do well to revisit it once more. For many Christians, for many Christians, when they speak of man's liberty, they really mean his ability. They're not really thinking of his power and freedom to choose, but what they're asserting is his actual ability to carry out whatever it is he chooses. This is what they call free will. But this is a very terrible misunderstanding because what, what we may want to do, what we may freely choose to do, 
doesn't always work in concert with what we're able to do. I may freely choose to run off the edge of Mont Blanc at the European Alps, but having the liberty to make that choice doesn't mean I have the innate ability to fly. There's a difference. Liberty and ability are not identical. They are not identical. And with this clarification, let me now address the last principle of our study, which ties in with everything we've covered in this first study on free will, and it serves as a, as a good concluding point that we must not miss. The choices we make are determined by who we are. The choices we make are determined by who we are. Our will is not free from what we are by nature. It is not. The human will is not a power or force that is somehow separate from the character of the man. Simply put, the choices we make are not separate from who we are. Rather, they are the outflow of who and what we are by nature. This is why Jesus teaches us in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 and 35, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. In the verse 35, the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. In the same way we recognize a tree by its fruit, we recognize a man by his actions. His deeds accord with what he essentially is by nature, and thus his choices spring from the very same source. This is why, for example, man in his sinful nature cannot and will not come to Christ for salvation. Cannot and will not. His will is bound up in his nature as a sinner. So when he hears the gospel, every choice he makes about the gospel is in rejection of it as his only hope of salvation. It is for this reason that the word of God stresses in no uncertain terms, that a sinner must be born again. Born again. There must be a regeneration. A regeneration of who the man is at the core of his being. And when the sinner is regenerated with a new nature, the result is a liberty of choices that never existed before. He hears the gospel for the first time as good news. For the first time, he hears it as good news. And in turn, closes with Christ as his only Savior and follows him as his only Lord. But the choices, now listen to me, the choices which bring him to conversion begin first with the implantation of a new heart that 
frees his will to choose Christ in a saving way. In other words, since God transforms the sinner into a different person, what does 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? If anyone is in Christ, he's a what? A new creation. Okay, right. New creation. So, since God transforms the sinner into a different person, a new creation, then the choices they make are in stark contrast from when they were in bondage to sin because the choices we make are determined by who we are. This is the reason. This is the reason why regeneration has to precede faith and repentance. It has to. Because if you can close with Christ in a real conversion without being born again, then riddle me this. What's the necessity of being born again in the first place? Why? Why? I mean, what's the point? I mean, if you can do all that without being born again, what's the point in being born again? The nature has to be changed. A new nature has to be created. And this is what God, through Ezekiel, is talking about, what he's promising. I will give them a new heart. I'll remove the heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. You see, it's out of of that new heart that, as I said, choices are made that before could never, ever be made. Never. Because the nature to determine such saving choices was not there. It did not exist. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Faith and repentance, therefore, are the results of what God has already done in the act of regeneration. But all of this just goes to prove this last principle. The choices we make are determined by who we are. And I will say that while many Christians might not have a problem with the first two principles of this morning's study. They will cry foul at the last one. Because of where it leads you theologically. Where you are forced to go. So to speak. Forced. Catch that? All right. Let's pray. Our blessed Father...
What a wonder is your creation, and what an astounding wonder, Lord, is your creation of man, fearfully and wonderfully made, as your word so declares of us all as mankind. And yet, Lord, as we have been reminded in this teaching, because we are created by your hand as morally free agents, then every choice we make is a real choice that we are really held responsible for by you, Lord, and, we be, and we'll be accountable for, whether good or bad. We therefore pray, Father, that in hearing this today and that the truth of this about the responsibility and the accountability of our choices, Lord, we ask that you will work in us the grace to truly feel the weight of that, to feel the weightiness of how even more careful we need to be in the choices we make as your people because every choice has consequences. And so, Lord, we, we pray that the Holy Spirit in his sanctifying work will take what we have learned this morning and apply it and seal it and work it in great conviction in our hearts as your people that we will be believers in Christ who truly work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Since it is God who works in us the power to will and do for his good pleasure. These things, Lord, we ask and plead in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord for his sake. Amen. Amen.